Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number one, desirable. I do what I want when I want and how I want it. Leave you with the one in the air. That's how I roll. I got some soul on my true collectible. Famous, super famous, number one, desirable. I do what I want when I want and how I want it. Leave you with the one in the air. That's how I roll. I got t-shirts, so I don't care about the gold. Better, so much better, flipping the credit card. Always on the street, so they know that I still got it. And I never feel sorry, yeah. Top of the world. Hey guys, I'm Sai. Welcome to Ace Podcast Nation, the home of our original created series, My Story. This is now our third series, and uh, what I do love about this series is that no matter who we speak to, there is always a story behind the person's journey. And uh, of course, a little bit of housekeeping to start us off. Ace Podcast Nation, as you know, you're home to many great shows and series featuring top guests, expert analysts, and more. My story, like all of our other shows and series, available in video format at the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Ace Podcast Nation. Please do give a subscribe, click the bell for notifications to get uh, everything we do first. And if you prefer your podcast in audio form, uh, this and all our other series available at the Sports Social Podcast Network, the UK's first all-sport dedicated podcast network. And you can find all uh, the content produced by Ace Podcast Nation there. But um, my story is unique. The series is unique. It's uh, slightly different to the, the usual stuff we do. It is uh, a 
we take our guests through their life, their career, from the starting with their birth, their upbringing, all the way up to present day as they share their stories, their anecdotes along the way. Across the two series so far, we've had actors, footballers, fighters, broadcasters, authors, filmmakers, podcasters and more. And series three will be absolutely no different. The tagline is simple. Real conversations with real people, their story in their words. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, kicking off the series, we had a phenomenal two-part episode with uh, the Central Club's uh, host, Cullen Mace, who talked about his battle with heroin addiction, prison, and then coming out the other side into the light and now helping people recover from uh similar issues and homelessness and things like that a really inspiring story but which which was quite emotional at times as well but uh, i urge you to check that out but uh, i'm delighted to say um that for episode two i'm joined by someone who if you're a regular viewer of the channel you'll be pretty familiar with anyway he's become our resident boxing pundit on the uh, the fight show on sundays and uh, he's also also an author a boxing media personality and of course a boxing trainer it is Mr. Ben Doherty. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm good, Simon. Good to see you again. Indeed, it's it's, it's like a regular thing at the moment. But it's it's yeah. uh, it's good good for me. I've got to say, I've uh, I really enjoy our conversations. Whenever we've talked, obviously we did uh, the first one we did was uh, an unscripted, uncensored, which feels yeah. like a very very long time ago. It got to be fair. Uh, time has flown. But, I've actually um, moved twice since then. I remember it was just early pandemic when it felt like the world was over. And I was, I've moved, this is another house and another house since then. Yeah, it's uh, it's time is, it's weird. The pandemic is is almost like you spend so much time stuck at home, but the time just seemed to fly by. And before you knew it, it's almost two years of of kind of living with those restrictions and and that in the life is just part of life now, unfortunately. But um, it's pretty self-explanatory, my friends. we're basically going to tell your story in your words and I'm going to sort of chip in now and again. Um, but what we like to do with the guests is basically take you right back to the start um, to get us going and you kind of just tell us a bit about your upbringing and 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 where it all began for Ben Doherty. Okay, so I, mean, I, I was born in 1970 in Birkenhead, which is you know near, near to Liverpool. It's got quite a sort of gritty urban reputation. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, I think I actually grew up in a place called Wallace. I was born in the hospital in Birkenhead, but never actually lived there. So my earliest memory, and it sounds like I'm, you know, it might sound contrived because boxing has been such a massive part of my life. It might sound like I'm trying to create a boxing related memory. But about the first thing I can remember is sparring with my dad, who was a massive boxing fan. Um, when I was about four years old, um, I remember he would kneel down, obviously, to facilitate what looked like a, a decent home matchup, you know, and we'd swap punches with these gloves. We seem to have a lot of gloves around the house. I remember having four-ounce boxing gloves, which I'd never really seen before or since, I don't think. Um, but it did appear, you know, because we lived in a like a housing estate, like a semi-detached housing estate in Wallasey. And as I grew up, I got a bit older, like five and six and seven and eight before we left, I do seem to recall that so many, all my little mates all had boxing gloves because at the time, Muhammad Ali was at, you know, the, the, the zenith of his fame and kind of social significance, you know, mid-1970s. And John Conte, of course, who also won the WBC World Light Heavyweight title in 1974, you know, same year as the Rumble in the Jungle, Ali Foreman. Yeah. 
he was big too. It was massive in those days because he was a scouser. Yeah, he was, he was a Liverpool lad. And I do remember, I just remember lots of kids having gloves and we would get the gloves out and have little sparring sessions, you know, when we were aged about six and seven and whatnot. And everybody wanted to be either Muhammad Ali or John Conte. Mm. And being because of the local uh, situation, quite a lot of those kids actually wanted to be John Conte, I seem to recall. Now, I, I wanted to be Ali. You know, I love John Conte. I, know I consider him a friend. But I don't need to tell you why I'd rather be Ali in any given kind <laughs> of dream fight scenario. You know, you, you don't want to be John Conte in that fight, do you? Come on, let's be honest no, for, let's for be so honest. many reasons. So, <laughs> But the kids were a little bit ignorant, of course, you know, being as they were only toddlers. So I I knew better even even back then, and I was like, no, fine, you be you be John Conte, I'll be Ali. I also remember, you know, when he lost to Leon Spinks in February '78, when I was at, still at, still in that area, going to a primary school. People are quite fickle by nature, a lot of people. So that everybody wanted to be Leon Spinks suddenly, and people would be saying, "You're you're Ali, I'm Spinks," and I'd be mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm absolutely fine with that. I wouldn't be Spinks <laughs> if he played me. So so yeah, you know, I remember. Um, I do remember boxing, to be honest, and I remember a lot of, um, obviously, it was a very different world. I remember th funny things like people's houses cost £9,000. I know yeah. some people were claiming to be better than other people next door because ours cost 11000 Yours only cost 9000 uh, You know, and I, th I remember things like that. Um, my parents split up when I was five, by the way. So my dad, who was a massive, massive boxing fan, him and my mum, obviously, they had various problems. Um, I don't mind saying, I mean, he, my dad was an alcoholic. He was like the picture, picture book alcoholic, really, that he was that guy that would go. It was like a Jekyll and Hyde transformation. And when I say that, I don't mean he was a bad guy or an ugly drunk or an angry drunk. He wasn't. I just mean it was that radical, the difference. He was more of a madcap and a, and a, and a banterer and, and, and a mischief maker. Honestly, he wasn't, he wasn't a, like a, a tawdry, violent person. And he didn't yeah. become that in drink, but he just... He was just a bit of a bloody lunatic, you know, in the in the funniest way and the kind of, where have you been? Why, why you sent you out for a tin of cat food like 36 hours ago? And he'd be like, I'm back and it's a long story, that kind of thing, you know. So yeah. so my mum was my mum was much more kind of driven than that and more responsible and wanted certain things out of life. And she thinks she realised with this guy, I, I ain't going to get him, you know. Uh, okay. I don't, I don't think so. So my parents split up when I was five and then I got uh, a stepdad moved in pretty quickly afterwards and then when I was eight, we, mother, you know, stepdad and baby brother moved down to Gloucestershire, um, Stroud in Gloucestershire, in the, in, in the valleys, you know. Uh, so I must be honest, I've, I've always had this feeling, you know, some people, I mean, I imagine you're Welsh born and bred and you probably have a sense of belonging about that. And I know a lot of people, like people who are from the East End of London or people who are up South London or you're born and bred. I don't really feel like I'm from anywhere because I was born in Liverpool area, moved to Gloucestershire at eight, then I moved up to London as soon as I was old enough to get there. You know, yeah. so I've never really felt that same sense of being from somewhere. But no, we we moved um, to Stroud when I was eight. And by the time I was, by age 10, I started boxing. I uh, started my first... The first night, it was a new club opening, actually. There was a new amateur club, which seemed like a really big deal at the time. You know, the ABA. Some people don't understand what amateur boxing is. You know, the distinction, I'm sure you do. You've got the pros. You've got amateurs that vary anything from novice to world class. But it's it's a proper, legitimised thing. And you've got the white-collar, unlicensed, semi-pro, whatever you want to call it. And that's all more of a kind of morass, really. You, you, A good boxer is a good boxer, you know. But... There's a lot more nonsense that goes on in that other melting pot. And I, by the way, I work in it and I enjoy, I enjoy it. It's fine. But amateur boxing is prestigious from the lowest level to the top. You know, it is 
can, yeah. can be, but I mean, it was Michael Conlon, wasn't it, who said it was rotten from the core to the top when he got robbed in the Olympics. That's just human nature. But amateur boxing is, there is something prestigious and noble about it. So I, it was January the 8th, 1980, that Roxburgh House Youth Club, ABC, opened um, in 1980. And I remember going that night and it was a really big deal. It was, I mean, obviously when you're smaller, I mean, I've, I recently went down to Gloucester on my 50th birthday last year and I found some old clippings from the Australian News and Journal and the Gloucester Citizen. And I saw, there must have been me weighing about three stone seven or something almost at the front of this this load of load of young boxers you know, and, and, and local dignitaries, mayors with chains on and stuff about the opening of the club. And I do remember it being massive. And I also remember... They got some of the local amateur stars from the region, from Bristol and Gloucester. Like one of them was Pete Hamlin, who boxed Barry McGuigan uh, in the ABAs, and he went. He was the he went to the Moscow Olympics, represented Britain at featherweight. So he was a huge deal, and um, he hadn't been to the Olympics at that point. But I remember mm. he sparred with sparred with some of his little kids for the papers, and I got in the paper, uh, landed a jab to, to Hamlin's stomach, and uh, my name in it and all the rest of it at age ten. So I suppose I all immediately fell in love with boxing and also that sense of attention I guess the idea that you could be in the paper at a young age I always had this sense of I like I like the, the, the glory and the limelight and I love boxing so that that's where it, it, that's where the boxing started for me you know in Stroud Gloucestershire you know but no, that, that's so, how that all started I think first of all um when you said you were born just outside Liverpool I was that was a surprise to me straight away because I, yeah. I assumed you know, wrongly, that you were going to say somewhere around London, just yeah. because that's what I associate you with now. Um, so that was a little bit of a surprise to me. With your dad, you said he was um, like a big into boxing. Was he involved in kind of boxing in, in any way, training or you anything know, like that, or was just a fan? He, he was just a fan, and it's funny, you know, because he 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 said he boxed a bit, but honestly, God love my, I love my dad, you know, and I always, we were very, very close, and you know, I worship his memory, etc. But I think he was spinning a bit of a yarn about having boxed. He, because he, he had a funny, interesting backstory that they went to his family, like his father and mother, went to South Africa for a certain period of his teenage years, which sounded like it was a bit kind of full on and quite wild. Some of the stories back then, you know, you're talking yeah, the 1960s in South Africa, you know. And uh, he claimed to have had a few amateur bets in South Africa, but not to put too fine a point on it. And, you know, forgive me for desecrating, you know, a loved one's memory. But I think he was exaggerating. I honestly do. Because, Simon, he had two left feet. Whatever um, whatever talent I had, it didn't seem to come from him. He had two left feet. We used to spar when, when he had a few drinks, or I guess we both had a few drinks when I was like 15 or 16. And um, he didn't shape up too well in these some of these living room battles. Quite honestly with you, you know, I'm not, mm. um, he's not here to defend himself. But but um, so no, he didn't, you know. But I think I think he would have loved to have worked in the industry. And if he'd have lived in, if he'd have been around today, I think he'd have found it easier to get involved. And if, if I'd have been doing what I'm doing today and I've done for the last ten or fifteen years in boxing circles, I would have brought him in, I'd have found him something to do, you know. Um yeah. and he could have, he could have got involved, you know, with whether it's coaching with the amateurs or doing helping with strength and conditioning with some of the some of the, the pros or whatever. I, you know, he did want to be a um a timekeeper at one point. He signed up for that but and he did do a few shows with the board control shows as a as a trainee timekeeper. But something went wrong with my dad, you know, something invariably seemed to go wrong and it didn't quite make sense the explanation and I do think some of it was possibly because of his drinking you know what I mean and mm. 
he he was a he, I mean, he was a great guy and he was a lot of fun I thought but not everybody shared that view when he was in his cups you know what I mean so yeah. I don't know what happened to the timekeeping but he what I some I think a lot of us think if only you could see me now and then some people say you know he can see you and, and you get into that of course, kind of yeah. otherworldly debate but um, I think he would be. Oh, when he died in 1997 at the age of 50, you know, which is actually a year younger than I am now, which is quite sobering, if you forgive the pun. He, all he knew was I was an ex-amateur boxer and I'd gone another route into, I'd become a musician. I'd got into the drinking quite a big way, the drugs, the, you know, and that, that whole, the whole mythology that goes with that life, you know, the, the mm. so-called rock and roll lifestyle. So he, he was always like, you know, he used to be good. You should take it up again. You're still not too old. That's what he told me at 26, 27. But, the, the living version of him doesn't know that I'd started boxing again, had some more amateur fights, started coaching, got a pro license, and just met so many of these bloody legends that we both adore, you know, adored from a distance. Sugar Lennon, Marvin Hagler, Roberta Duran, you know, Larry Holmes, all the rest of them. So I think if he were able to come back for a day, I think it would be quite mind-blowing to see how the world is these days. And just yeah. the amount of stuff, the amount of box what do they call it, bucket list things that I've ticked off on his behalf a little bit, you know. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I think um, it's, it's, yeah, because my father died uh, in 1998, so a, a year later, um, and I th I often think, you know, what would he make of what I was doing now and, and some yeah. of the people who I've gone on to, to, to interview and speak to and meet and become friends with. I'm sure he, like you say, it'd be it, quite a few of those things. And it would be, looking back to that time, they're on the bucket list, you know. Um, so it's yeah. it's interesting how the world's developed and how things, you know, as life is, it throws up many a curveball, which are a curveball, which I'm sure we'll uh, get to. In terms of your sort of your formative years, your teenage years, was there was boxing like the the only thing for you? Was there other sports? Yeah. Was there other things that interested Nothing. you? Nothing got no. in. I, I, so I started it that, that night, January the eighth, nineteen eighty, when I was ten years old. I joined up. Um, then, I mean, if you want to be really accurate, I was actually nine years old and I was turning 10 the next month, to be totally accurate. But um, I knew I had to train for a year before I was allowed to box, you know, in a contest. I talked to it straight away and I was there. That I, we used to train, I think, three nights a week and then sometimes a Sunday morning, like Tuesday, Thursday, Friday kind of thing, as I recall. And uh, it felt like forever to me, a year, because it's a long time of your life when you're only 10, isn't it? You of course, know, yeah. Uh, they fly by when you're older, but... And I knew I had to train for a year in the gym before I was allowed out to box. So obviously I saw a lot of the other lads initially um, getting out, being the first to box for this new club. And um, and obviously I just couldn't wait for my turn. But it, honestly, it was the only thing. My thing, if I've had a fault, I've always, it's always been just going overboard straight away and talking about what I'm going to do. And, and it's all okay to be ambitious, but sometimes it is a little better to be a little bit more humble and a bit more practical and be like, well, let's see, you know, bring, give it everything you've got, 100%, but say, let's see where we go. But that wasn't, when I was 11, I was like, no, I'm going to the 1988 Olympics. I, I, will, I will win gold, blah, blah, blah. Because uh, I wanted to be like Muhammad Ali, you know, my, my hero. And yeah. I would have been 18, I was 18 in in 1988 so I was projecting the same triumph that he got and you don't have that you don't have that perspective at that age or I certainly didn't anyway uh so that was as far as I was concerned what I was going to do so I did pretty much lay those seven years down to pretty much just a boxing I mean I and I had quite a few amateur fights I had, I had 34 amateur fights between the ages of 11 and 18 I know it was 34 I can still remember all the opponents if not the exact order 
And uh, yeah, honestly, you know, I wasn't really. I mean, I got I, when I got in the sixth form, in the lower six, I was sixteen. I got a girlfriend, and then we went out to pubs. And I, but back in those days, I could get you know, you could get drunk and nice and kind of buzzed off four pints. I would have four yeah. pints, and you'd have your whatever your kind of snog, uh, fumble, etc. And that was all right. That was that was that was that was R and R back then. It was that simple. But, I, but it didn't. You know, I was still boxing and continue to box. Um, Till I was eighteen, really, yeah. So, in answer to your question, it was the only thing that mattered. Um, it's interesting because um, it sounds, in some ways, you've got quite a, in those teenage years, you've got a bit of a correlation with myself in that I was more about sort of football and I played a bit of cricket, and I was the same from sort of about eleven, twelve. That was all I was going to do. I was going to be a professional footballer, and nothing was going to stop me. And then. Kind of as I got to like 15, 16, I kind of discovered girls and, and drinking and I smoked and and then training became a bit more of a hassle. Yeah. And then by the time I turned 18, I was already had built up quite a tolerance to drinking. So by the time I got to my 20s, when I had a few issues, but like in terms of your boxing then, like as a sort of say 15, 16 year old, were, were you close to being good enough to, to, you know, to really take it on as a, a professional or was it not quite there? No, uh, well, I, I think it, I think it was there, but um, it's interesting when you say about, you know, you almost got the old school uh, barometer then when you said, were you good enough to be a professional? Whereas um, you probably are aware now anybody's good enough to be a professional. It's like a rubber stamp. It's, you know, yeah. it's become. It's become what it is. I'll give you an example. I don't want to sidetrack, but very briefly, I, I saw a couple of pros going for their trial with a, with a border control inspector uh, earlier this week in a gym I happened to be in. And one guy was 36 and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be too specific because you never know at the reach of these kind of things that we do. Yeah, of course. But um, long story short, the border control man who also trains amateurs, he has an amateur club that he's also very involved with and he's a steward for the British Boxing Border Control on the pro side. He said, if you come to my club, you know, the amateur club, I'd tell him thanks, but no thanks. There's nothing we can do with you. You're too old and you're not good enough. And, you know, tactfully, he'd say that. Yeah. He said, but pro, I'll let him go. Yeah, see what we can do. Now, they that is revealing enough in itself, isn't it? So course, was yeah. I good enough to be a pro by any modern yardstick? Absolutely. And I, I think by I was anyway. But in, in terms of success, amateur fight, I mean, I won I won seven out of my first nine, which was, which was okay. I mean, I did. I was really annoyed and gutted when I actually lost the first one, of, you know, because I didn't. People would say to me, well, did you think you were never going to lose or something? But honestly, the answer was yes. That was, the, that was very much the plan. This is this is very unforeseen and unlooked for and you know regrettable. But um, no, I mean I, I won my first title. I won was the Northern Division of the Western Counties Junior, either Junior A or B. I think Junior B because I'd I'd lost to my name. I had a kid at school called Joe Blackwood. I fought five times, and we were the, he was my biggest rival. I never fought anybody five times competitively except for him, and uh, he beat me the first time. Then he beat me again in a non-title, just a club bout. Then he beat me on another club bout, 3-0. And that was hell at school because his guys, he was like one of the tough kids and one of the cool kids. He didn't have parents as such. He must have had, but he, he was from a children's home. And um, he was one of the few black kids at our school in a very you know, mm. provincial white area. But but he was he was, he was was the hardest kid in the year by, by consensus. And I, I didn't fancy putting that to the test outside the ring. 
and he was he was just cool. He was a, he went people went to hip hop and break dance, and he had all the moves. Joe Blackwood was badass, but you know the thing is these people are badass at school, but they tend to peak very early. And they te- when you yeah. see them in adult life, they haven't amounted to much with the best one in the world. But Joe, funny thing about Joe Blackwood is I've seen him about, somebody got a video of him for me literally this year. He preaches in the central Gloucester now in, the, in what they call the cross because there's like Eastgate, Westgate, Northgate, Southgate Street. And he yeah. stands on the cross preaching the word of God, which is fine. But he said, but but he would be seen as a little bit offbeat by, by a lot mm. of people these days. Yeah. But, but he was cool as, as fuck at school. Yeah. And the point being... I wasn't cool. A lot of people said he's a posh kid, he's a fraud. But I've I kind of had that all my life a little bit. Some people don't. You know that Morrissey lyric, how can they look into my eyes and still they don't believe me? I've, I've, I feel that's been a syndrome a lot of my life. But So they th- people were like, you know, you can't, you've, he's beat you three times. And it's said in the local paper, especially if it was Australian Journal, that I should have won at least two of them. They were saying most of the, the crowd disagreed with the result. But it doesn't matter. He was 3-0 and against me. So then we fought in the championships. January 1984, and I beat him this time. I beat him the fourth time of asking. And then I went through to the final that night. Had to fight another kid later that day. Sometimes you had to fight twice. Yeah. And I, and I, I beat the other kid from Bristol. So then I won the... That, that was meant I was the Northern Division of the Western Counties champion at 45 kilos. And then I went to Bournemouth for the next for the next week. And it was on my 14th birthday. And I lost... I, I think I, I, I'm not going to come about the we was robbed thing but everybody thought I got robbed that night that's all I'll say everybody thought I got robbed and the yeah. kid himself the kid himself and his trainer told me I won and he said we're sorry about that but what it meant was I didn't go through to the West of England final he did he, he went through to the West of England final won it then he went to the quarters and I'm not sure how he got on but the next year I won the West of England's um, and then got to the national quarter final this would have been 1985 and um and, and I got better, to be honest with you. I got done in the first round by a kid called Jason Smith from a London club. I don't know where he was from. I've been a bit rusty because I hadn't boxed in the previous round. And I, my trainer told me to have a warm-up bout, just a club bout, just to keep rusty. And I thought I knew better. I said, no, I'm not going to do anything to jeopardise the, the national quarterfinals. But that was silly because I... Uh, it just what nothing was right that day. That my club didn't actually come with me. They sent me with Gloucester ABC because they had a show of their own that night. And they just sent a... A guy, an old boy called Ted, who was like an assistant in the gym up with me, but they didn't send the head coach with me or anything like that, which I, there's no point complaining about it now, is it? It's a long time ago, yeah. but you know what I mean? It, it just wasn't right, and I got I got done in a round. I, I got put down twice, I got up twice, and then the referee waved it off. And uh, just felt like the kid was a lot stronger than me at the time, you know, a lot closer to maturity, I guess. And um, so that was that. And then um, after that, I, I continued until I, but by the time you, you used to turn senior at the age of 17, and I started to get the, the men's strength. I only had, first time around, I only had three senior bouts. I won the first senior bout by stoppage in the second round at 17. Then I won the next, then I lost the next one uh, to, to a kid up, uh, I'm in touch with these days as a coach at one of the Gloucester clubs. He, he, he was quite a good amateur called Nick Purcell. Um, he had about 76 amateur fights and did quite well. He, um, a few years older than me, he beat me on him. I think it was a majority decision. Then my last one was against a, a guy from the from the Paris, from the army, uh, quite a lot older than me, good boxer, but I beat him. Um, and then, at, the, at that point, I was 18. And um, I'm not sure what happened. I would I would never have believed, if you'd have told me, oh, you, you know, like you said about drinking and not really being up for training anymore, I would never thought it would happen to me. I would never, ever thought it would happen to me. But... Um, once the summer came and we did A-levels that year, and then 1988, I was rowing with my, 
my mum and my stepdad at the time, like like teenagers do, you, you start to think, you know, you, you're an adult technically, but you're obviously a million miles away from majority. Yeah. You tend to be pretty selfish and headstrong. So I walked out one night, literally just one night, walked out one evening. Um, it was still light, I remember. And uh, just, just didn't come back, essentially. I must have gone back to collect some stuff up. But I went, 18 years old, I went to uh, stay with a friend for a couple of weeks on a friend's couch. His mum let me stay. Then I then I got myself a job in a wine shop in the centre of town, and then um, I didn't get the A level results I probably should have got. Certainly not to the satisfaction of universities. The the offers that were contingent, the offers that my placement was contingent upon, that wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't met. So rather than look up any kind of last minute polytechnic places, or you know, I was too clever or too proud for that. So I just worked in a wine shop for. Well, I was calling it a year out, but I've actually yet to get back in the academic system even now. So it was a hell of a long year out that I took. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I, then I just drifted into life, um, a different kind of life. You know what I mean? The, the club shut down, the, 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 which obviously didn't help. But if I'd have been really serious, I could have found another one. But started working in the wine shop. I went to see Guns N' Roses at Donington Rock Festival in what, whenever that was. I think it was August. I believe it was August of that summer. And I saw Axl Rose and Slash on stage, and I, without being pretentious, something happened. Something there was a transformation or something. I thought that is what I want to be. Suddenly, I want to yeah. be like that. Um, and the Sugar Ray Leonard and Muhammad Ali took a little bit of a back seat for quite a while. I mean, I, I was never going to lose that love and kind of idolization for either of those two, two fighters. But no, I thought, you know what? I, was, I wanted to get a guitar. I wanted to drink Jack Daniels. I wanted to, you know, to, to taste those kind of delights that. That rock starred and provided a gateway to. So, I got sacked from the wine shop. Start, got an, got another job at R Price Music. Do you remember R Price Records? Remember them? Vaguely, yeah, yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah, they used to be as big as HMV, but they dropped off at some point in the nineties. Yeah. And um, yeah, then so obviously that was a great job because then you could look how you wanted. I was suddenly developing an alternative image, growing long hair, and you know, looking, I guess, kind of punk rock goth. I I was trying to look like like Guns N' Roses, like, you know, these kind of glam metal bands. But I think there was always a bit more of a gothic kind of look to what yeah. I managed to achieve. But that went hand in hand with the with working in a record shop. But the, the problem was I got fired from the record shop. So not really fired, they just didn't offer me a contract after after the three-month yeah, uh, okay. probation period. And um, after getting the kind of the, 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 the marching orders at the record shop... Um, I went to. I moved up to London and went went to live with my dad initially, and that's how you know from nineteen onwards, I wound up in London. But you know, I didn't have any, I didn't have any career plan or any game plan except for the fact that well, I was going to be a world champion, and and now I'm going to be a rock star instead. It, it really was that blatantly, kind of paper thin, you know, and, and immature really. It's interesting. So, you said like the Guns and Roses uh, at Donington was kind of like the. The change in mentality almost from what you wanted to do with yourself and i think probably i don't know if you'd agree but like when you get a job and you start getting money coming in and you meet different people that always has an impact on things outside of that as well because you you just generally meet a, like a, a different type of people you you're talking to people you're getting money each week or each month and i think yeah. you can just generally change uh not necessarily your priorities at first but you just start doing different things and hanging out with different people and and i guess yeah. that kind of coincided with you obviously 
going the Guns N' Roses uh, look route and and kind of going with that. So I, I obviously I've seen in the last couple of days I've seen on your uh, social media page you had your guitar out and stuff. Yeah. So was music something which you watched? You know, you wanted to sort of pursue at that point? Yeah, because first of all I saw Axel and Slash, um, and just suddenly you know it was that. I guess it was my, that kind of teenage awakening deferred a few years by my boxing because I experienced that kind of rush of fuck yes, this is the only thing that matters, and I'm gonna I'm gonna devote my whole life to you know to try to emulate this. I think a lot of people probably experienced that about fifteen, you know, mm. and I was eighteen, yeah. pushing nineteen when I suddenly thought this is what this is where it's at, and um, it was yeah. But and then the thing was, as soon as I moved to London and I started staying on my dad's. Um, couch initially uh, I, I ran into a mu musician kind of set of people in Richmond he lived in Richmond Surrey which is a nice part of, of, of it, it's Surrey but it is London it's a nice part of Greater London you know and it's obviously it's quite an affluent part of Greater London it's very it's very kind of white and kind of middle class and and beyond middle class you know and uh, I, I ran into initially I ran into an old rocker called Alan Henry who did a lot of pub gigs and was a bit of a you know Bit of a charmer, a little bit, bit of a romancer. Lived in a bed, sit above the bookies. On he wasn't one of the affluent Richmond people. He'd come down from Blackburn, and he used to, you know, he could always just about pull a bird or a hungry kind of sex-starved housewife at one of his gigs at the Coach and Horses or whatever. But he, you know, but he and he'd done a few recordings and stuff. And he, I, I fell in with him at first, and then from him I met his guitarist, who was actually a guitar wizard who used to do gigs with him, was also in a proper band, and the, and the singer of this particular band turned out to be an ex-punk rock star called Andy Blade, who was in a band called Eater. We were part of that first punk explosion. And they, their kind of cachet they had was that they were the youngest, they were younger than anybody. And I think they got off to a pretty good start with the enemy when they said John Lydon was okay, but he was a bit old, you know, because he was 21 or whatever. So Andy was 28 or 29 at the time, and I was like 19. And he was still writing songs, still trying to make, he was trying to, reinvent himself and get more success after the initial success he got in the punk vanguard and i fell in with him a lot and he had quite a mentorial type effect on me sort of you know kind of influenced me in terms of how you should write a song and what you should do um and why you should be in a band and what, what there was the best look and all the rest of it and then so that was the thing suddenly my life revolved around there was an older guy called Chris who was a producer who worked for a company that made mixing desks, but he was also a guitar wizard himself, really good musician. So you know what I mean? Yeah, like you say, different people. It was a different scene. And then I met people who... There was a guy, Dave Goodman, who was the Sex Pistols' first sound engineer, who's... If you Google Dave Goodman, you'll see a lot of links with the Sex Pistols and Susie and the Banshees and stuff. And... Um, yeah, and he'd have parties at Crystal Palace, and suddenly I was a part of this musician set and going to gigs and stuff. And and, and yeah, I mean, trying to I was learning guitar and all the rest of it, but I wasn't really. Uh, I put an advert in Kerrang magazine, yeah, you know, the, the old rock magazine. Yeah. Uh, like people did, you know, you pluck up the courage and put, you know, singer seeks musician for band influences of Guns and Roses, Dogs to Moor, Aerosmith, whatever. And then initially, the fellow who turned up, he looked awful for a start, and he wasn't really much of a bass player he had a guitarist with him and a flying b who really seemed to be like he was far too much like iron maiden kind of orientated but but the drummer that they brought to this rehearsal was actually a really good drummer and he was much more like my kind of thing so but you know the the, the short story is nothing came of it um at that particular point but i was 
to be honest with you, it's a bit like the boxing insofar as I had these massive projections about what I was going to achieve. But musically, I really wasn't, it would have been, once again, would have been better just to have worked harder and knuckled down and just got on with it. I think far too much of it for me was about the image and the, and the kind of set that I was moving, you know, at that point. Yeah. So with that, like you've taught, you've, you mentioned a bit earlier about sort of the, the drinking and, and the, 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 the things that followed. Was that kind of a knock on effect from this kind of change in your outlook? It may, I mean, it might seem that way, but to be honest with you, because I'm a recovering alcoholic myself and I have not had a drink for four years, eight months and a, and a handful of days. And um, I think it would have found me anyway. There's no way. I yeah. mean, I, it, it was only being deferred because as much as, yes, philosophically, I was much more about the, the kind of um, drugs and drink, you know, as be, you know, the, the whole kind of religious idea that you, you have to be wrecked to have a good time and, you know, it's all about going hard or going home and all the rest of it. Yeah. But I think my alcoholism, no doubt, would have manifested itself. Now, if I'd have been a boxer, I suppose I'd have stayed on the straight and narrow and I'd have turned pro and however well, or well, I'd, however well I'd have done or otherwise, I'm sure that drinking would have, you know, would have, would have caught up with me at some point. But um, I went to the guy that I said was the sound engineer uh, and he worked for a company that got free, something called standby tickets for the States. And it so happened, I just expressed an interest in going to New York and he said, well, if you want to go, I'll give you a free ticket because I get them through this company and, you know, I'll give you a ticket and you can go and see how you get on. So that's what I did. Uh, I went I went to New York in August 1990. Uh, I, I had 400 quid on me, which is like, it was, it was like exactly $800 at the time. And it, to be honest, it was out there, really, I really got into drinking a lot. I was... I stayed in New York for a couple of weeks and then went to Chicago, somewhere near Chicago in Illinois. And I stayed with an uncle of mine for like about six weeks. And I had a cousin out there that I didn't really know, but we kind of were the same age. And we, we spent like about six weeks just hanging out in his truck, drinking can after can after can after can of beer. Tried cocaine out there for the first time as well, so I thought that was great. Obviously, at the time, like you do when you're young and stupid. Was that the first, was that your first sort of dabbling with with the drug side of things, or would uh, you because you're be boxing, honest, yes. you'd kind of like steered away from that stuff yeah. in your teenage years? To be honest, it was really yeah. I mean, I tried to smoke weed before that in Richmond with the with the people. I'd, I'd done magic mushrooms, you know, before that, so there was that, but. Um, that was the first, I do remember that was the first time I tried cocaine was in was in Illinois and um, I thought after six weeks I could tell my uncle was thinking it's probably about it just got that feeling it's like much as it's great to have family around it might be an idea of you left soon and you know what I only had I had hardly any money left and I was in um, Illinois like the middle of the country um, and uh, my ticket to go home was from Newark, New Jersey. So I didn't actually have enough to to get back to Newark. I didn't have enough money to do that. But what I did have, this sounds silly, but when we left from New York, I had some friends with me from London who were in New York as well, but they were going to Boulder, Colorado, because my mate Julian was going to join a band out there and he was going to try He was going to try and become a rock star. He met the guy when he was at university in England and they, they made a pact to do some gigs in Colorado and try and crack the campus scene out there and record some songs. So he was going to follow his rock star dream. 
And he said to me, well, you know, we, we all left on the same day. I was going to Chicago and those boys, him and his mate were going to, to Denver. Now, the thing was, they said the ticket to Chicago was $119. And their ticket, which is only like a thousand miles away, and their ticket, which is closer to 2,000 miles away, was only 79 bucks. And I was like, well, how can that be? And I was so skint already that I was like, well, does your bus stop anywhere near Chicago? And it turns out it stopped right in Chicago. So all I said, it was a no-brainer, you know. I was like, well, I'll buy the yeah. Denver ticket then. Because, you know, I was only ever intending to get to Chicago with it, but it was cheaper. So I brought a ticket to Denver purely for that reason. Once I've worn out my welcome at my uncle's, he didn't say go, but I just got the feeling he said, he's had enough of me now. All we're doing is partying and hanging out and keeping him awake. So I thought, well, I can't get back to New Jersey anyway, but I maybe I can get to Denver. So I rang up the Greyhound bus number, whatever, on the back of the ticket. And they said, you, yeah, as long as it's within three months of your initial you know, journey, you're allowed to continue to the name destination on the ticket, which I thought was brilliant. So yeah. they said, yeah, just you know, get back on the bus and you can go to Denver if you want. So I did. And uh, literally three days in at maximum, I was down to my last $6 in Denver. And I managed to blag myself some work at a standby agency. I managed to convince... Managed to convince these people that everything was above board, shall I just say? Um, you know, they they wrote me a little badge which had my which had various digits on it and my name, and um, they said that's great. That's all you need to show when you come in for work here. And this this place was fantastic because what it it was just instant muscle firm. So jobs came in, like just temporary jobs. Like they'd be like, we need six guys to move furniture downtown or whatever or does anybody want to wash dishes tonight that's just a one person gig you take that if you want it's like a it's, a, it's an eight hour shift you'll be washing dishes you'll be a bus boy whatever other times it's like some rich woman's house in the hills has burned down to a cinder and we need someone to gut it and bring all the rubble upstairs and stuff but you just got different jobs every day and you were different different workmates a lot of hispanics you know and you know mexicans and 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 puerto ricans and stuff and I, I thought that was brilliant because what, what it taught me, you know, was I was like 20 years old and I thought, I do know how, I didn't know this before I came, but I do know how to survive because at some point the, the wealthy guy who gave me the ticket came out to visit us in, to see how we were getting on in Colorado because my mate was in his band. I Because I, I went to, I hooked up with him obviously, but, but kind of did my own thing with the work in the agency. And, and he said, he, he thought I'd have been back by then because he thought, how how's he managed to stay out as long as he has on the budget? And he says, what I've realised is you do have an ability to land on your feet. And then the next thing you knew, um, Julian said, and his bandmates uh, said, well, well, we'll pay you $25 a night to be a roadie. They weren't gigging every night or anything like that. They would dig, no. dig in maybe once every couple of weeks, but they still... They let me hang out at rehearsals. I learned to play guitar better. They let me sing one number in the set. They wanted to do like, they said, it'd be cool if we did a Ramones number. Could you fancy that? I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I was singing in front of, like, you know, nightclub audiences in, in Boulder, Colorado. It's like a very hip student town. It was then, probably still is. There was a, you know, you know, it's like just lots and lots, thousands and thousands of young people drinking, experimenting yeah. with drugs. Bit of a throwback town. Everybody was into the Grateful Dead and the Stones and the Beatles and the Doors. Jim Morrison was a, was a, was the patron saint of Boulder, and um, yeah, so I was roadieing, um, singing occasionally. Girls did love an English accent. That was true, you know. It, I mean, I, I was I was lousy at closing still then, but I got a lot of phone numbers with not a lot of action. But there was a lot of initial interest at least, you know. But I still didn't have it quite as down as Julian did, who was the singer. So he obviously tended to do a little better anyway, but. But yeah, and I'd, and I'd work at the standby agency whenever I was really getting skinned. But to be honest with you, a lot of the time you could 
drift from party to party all week, drinking for free at keg parties, usually find something to eat in the fridge, and that, and that was that, you know. So, yeah, it sounds like um, it's quite the uh, it's quite the difference, isn't it, to what you were doing, like where you thought your life was going to go. Certainly, in your you know in your yeah. late teens and your teenage years, you were very focused on. I'm going to be a boxer. This is what I'm going to do. And then, like you said, the Guns N' Roses concert kind of changed that all. And then you're up, you're out in America, roadieing for a band. It's like a very drastic difference. Yeah. And yeah, people uh, always knew I was a boxer. And what people, what they liked back then, the novelty back then in that gang was okay. So we've got a bodyguard because the thing is, it's like he doesn't look like a bodyguard. I mean, I suppose these days I could look kind of tough or whatever because I've got broken nose no hair you know what I mean I'm a bigger guy I've, you know, I've grown up now you, you know you fill out as a man but when I was a skinny kind of long haired uh, young individual uh, trying to go for that kind of heroin chic before I actually tried to get the real thing people didn't see you as a fighter you know what I mean and they were surprised when you hit him with a right hand and a left hook and, and, and you knock a big guy out like a jock at a frat party and they're like God did you see him go you know what I mean because they don't expect it you know, so that so that was always a novelty. I, I it was like I never wanted it to be a secret. The boxing, the boxing always followed me around. There was always that reputation. He's a boxer. Always had it. Always liked it too. But I just wasn't going anywhere near the ring. You know, and to to cut a long story short, that that would have been fine to be honest with you. That would you know those them typical years of misspent youth. But most people combine it with some kind of academic study, with some kind of institution, which I didn't. That was the trouble, and it took me far too long. I had just too much playtime, as my aunt once said, because I just carried on that way, to be honest with you. You know, I mean, like I said, I, I could go into more detail, but I'm aware of our kind of time frame. And, you know, so I got back from the States. The point being, then I was drinking like a like an animal, more or less. And I wanted I wanted every drug. I wanted to try to ingest every drug under the sun, you know, because I, ecstasy was all the, the rage in England. Not so much in America when I was out there, but when I got back, you know, 1990, 91. Yes. Um, I'd like to say, I'm not going to describe it in detail, but I got back from Colorado, by the way, with no passport and no money, which people might say, it's described in the books. It's described in the first book, Drink, Drugs and Boxing, uh, Drink, Drugs, Birds and Boxing, Volume 1. And I, it, it sounds implausible and it wouldn't happen today, but I got back with, with just a birth certificate and no cash from Denver to Richmond, sorry, including the taxi back to Richmond for Victoria. But, you know, I mean, I got back... Um, Moved back down to Stroud a little while after that, to be honest with you, because the house I grew up in was vacant. It's a long story, but I moved into that on the on the grounds that I was looking after it, as it were, which is, I, I had a pretty funny way of doing that, to be honest with you. But uh, me and my best mate from Stroud, from secondary school, moved in there, and we just tried to create this kind of rock star palace on a gyro budget. That's what we did. And um, I met my the, the girl I ended up marrying in 92, but... She was a singer, so we were going to do this thing together, be like the Kurt and Courtney of 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 you know of of the uh, West Country. <laughs> but to be honest with you, we just got more into heroin. That's a downward spiral. Well, my drinking wasn't too bad then. I, I always liked to drink, but the drug interest kind of kept my alcoholism at bay. To be totally honest with you, so our relationship failed. We got married in '94, broke up by the end of '95, so that didn't last long. Drugs was a factor. Immaturity was a factor. Narcissism, no doubt, a factor on my part, and being a bit of a control freak, all the rest of it. So, then, and you know, I just carried on. To be honest with you, it was um, I got with another girl, I'm still friends with today. We were together for about four years, but the drugs were always there. We moved to London, got in a bit of trouble with the police at various times, doing this, that, and the other. 
um, moved to London again in 1997. Dad died in 97 due to alcoholism, basically. You know, died in a sea of mm. cans and bottles and stuff, which obviously is tragic, really, uh, when, when you're only 50 years old and you had so much more life to live. And there's no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, I was going the same way if, if, if the miracle hadn't happened for me and I hadn't got sober. But yeah, so... By 1999, I went to Paris, and once again, I was still doing the same thing, being the big fish in a small pond, the guitar guy, the Britpop guy in the hostel, which was fine for female attention, American girls, groupies and stuff. And But the thing is, I was already 29 then, and a lot of people who were doing it were 10 years younger than that, or you know, or six years younger than that, whatever. So I just continued to do that, and it was I was still drifting in 2000. And, in 2002, I had this girlfriend. We were living in a... And mum was nice house in Clerkenwell. I'd, I'd moved in by degrees, to be honest with you. And mum was a really nice lady. It didn't seem to mind. But it was no kind of official conversation. Can Ben move in? It just kind of happened. Yeah. And I said to her, we should go to... Um, the thing is, she liked boxing. So we started going to a few boxing shows that year. And then I said to her, it would be fun to go to New York. We should experience that, you know. And then it, it so happened that um, Arturo Getty and Mickey Ward were having their rematch. They had an incredible fight in May of 2002. And some people still think it's the greatest fight in history. You know, it, it was that good. But their rematch was in the, was November 23rd, um, 2002. And because we were arriving in New York, we'd already booked the tickets November 19th. I said, we should go to the fight. So we did, you know, we booked tickets to that fight. And that was how the boxing started again for me, really, because we went to the, uh, to the show and it was obviously quite exciting. Paul Manaji became quite an important person in boxing and especially to British fans. He's popular over here. He was... Uh, a rookie pro on the undercard. He was having about his, I think his 12th fight, something like that. Uh, and he wanted, he won an eight round decision on the card. And I, I remember like seeing him and thinking he looks like he's got potential. The World Getty fight was still brilliant. It just wasn't quite as amazing as the first one, but it was amazing to see it live. And then I walked into Gleason's gym on the Monday and, and Malinaji was there, you know, and um, introduced to him. He was really friendly. So was Bruce Silverglade who owned the gym. And I fell into the, initially just joined the gym just to get fit again. That was the premise. And, I fell into it again and sort of fell back in love with it again. Um, started training, uh, started sparring with some good pros out there, that which was a great experience. And then I got an amateur card again. I got you know I got my American amateur license and I had a, a comeback fight July two thousand three out there. I trained for quite a few months and I lost a majority decision to a kid called Ashanti Hendrickson who went on to he went on to turn pro, but more. His probably biggest claim to fame is he boxed Danny Jacobs, Demetrius Andrade, and Keith Thurman as an amateur as well as boxing me. Uh, he, he he boxed them as well. I think he lost to all of them, but he was not. He wasn't a bad kid. You know what I mean? He, he gave me a good fight anyway. I mean, I've, our fight was close. So I'd been out of the ring for like, to be honest with you, I'd actually been out of the ring since 1988. So I'd not had a bout since I was 18. Um, although I had trained and sparred with pros more like at the age of 21. So I had kind of been in the ring before that. And... Um, to come back, you know, even though I lost the fight, I still I still was quite upbeat about it because it was very unlikely that I was going to, you know, was, would have boxed again at all, you know. So, mm. and then I, then from after leaving New York in August two thousand three, I came back to the um, to to London and immediately joined a club, you know, the Angel ABC. I, I just said to them, I'd like to help with coaching, which they welcomed me open arms because they they needed coaches. But I said, you know, I've got one year left as an amateur, you know, as a senior. So if you could put me for, for a few bouts as well, that'd be appreciated. And uh, young John Ryder was there. He, he hadn't had any bouts at the time, but I sort of took him under my wing of it initially and we sparred a lot. 
And, uh, you know, obviously he, he ended up doing really well. Uh, you know, he won the National Novices Class A and B and turned pro. And, he, you know, really he should have been a world champion because he, he beat Paul, he beat Callum Smith, let's be honest, you know, but he didn't get the decision. He was, he was at one point, they were talking about him getting the Canelo fight. If Billy Joe was going to pull out, when Billy Joe was having murders over the sides of the ring with Canelo, they were going to bring John Ryder in, you know. So, John, I always thought John had potential to do something really good, you know, in amateurs and the pros, and he, he went and did it. But for me, I, I had a few more bouts for the Angel. I, I won my last fight March 25th, 2004. And then I went into the coaching, you know, initially coaching the the Angel Leds. Uh, and then I went to, before very long, I went to the Repton, you know, which obviously the, is a very famous, um, legendary club. Tony Burns, who died, I'm trying to think of it, he died, I, don't, I can't remember, you know, Simon, if it was last year or this year, I can't, it's been, we're nearly at the end of the year, right, so it might have been this yeah. year, but Tony, Tony Burns passed away in the last several months, and it was, it rocked the whole foundations of British boxing, he did get a 10-bell salute at one of the matchroom shows, and, uh, you know, that was, um, from 2005 onwards, I spent three years at Repton coaching and, 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 and learning about the training side of it, you know. I, I still sparred with the boys because I was still kind of young and lively enough, so I still did, got involved and put the gloves on. But that kind of launched me into the into event, you know, applying for a pro license towards the end of 2008. Interesting. Interesting, because you kind of went full circle. You kind of were neck deep in boxing yeah, and then drifted away from it completely. Yeah. Did all sorts all across the world and then still ended up back in the ring getting the pro license when you i just wanted to, to clarify something you know when you um when you went to uh when you decided to get fit again and start training again that initial day yeah were you still using drugs at that point or had you sort of made the decision to get clean I, I i listen I, I drifted away from drugs for the most part i wasn't doing heroin anymore although I had I did dabble with that for years after I was kind of officially clean from it I would still in the kind of 2000 2001 kind of period I was hanging out in Camden Town a lot I was in another band technically speaking although we only ever did two gigs you know the usual thing lots of front but not a lot of work ethic um and we would sometimes go to King's Cross where there was a funny guy who used to sell travel cards used travel cards but before the advent of the Oyster card pushed people like him out of out of business. He used to sell used travel cards and he had a kind of place in King's Cross and it was a place you could go to score. And sometimes after a night on the tiles in Camden Town, I'd sometimes wind up smoking a bit of gear at this particular place. So, you know what I mean? It, I hadn't quite turned my back on it. But, but by 2003, when I started boxing again, um, I was just drinking a, a lot, really, and still drinking a lot. I mean, I... Once I had a, a fight on the go, and, and uh, they give me a date of July the 12th, 2003, that was going to be my first fight in a very long time. I stayed off the booze for quite a lot of weeks, but do you know what? July 4th came around, there was a lot of celebrations. I ended up getting pissed out of my head and going to a pool party that day. And um, so I only had eight days until the fight, and I felt guilty about it when you woke up the next day. But obviously, you're like, well, it's only one blowout, I'll be all right. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've had a good three weeks clear before that. And, yeah. You know, but but no drugs. Drugs. I sort of. I kind of grew out of drugs naturally, really. But I didn't grow out of drinking by any stretch. Never grew out of that. What sort of what sort of um, what sort of drunk were you? Were you like um, you know, like, you know what? Life, was... life and soul of the party? Quite quiet. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. 
a bad drunk. A lot of people said I could really hold it and drink a lot without acting out of order. Mm. But I think anyone could get blackout drunk if you really try. And, I, and, yeah. I, and also, because, Simon, it's a progressive illness, you find you you get to a point when you're a certain age when you can't hold it anymore and you're getting pissed easier and quicker and you seem to be pressing the fuck it button every time you really yeah. have, a, have a drink. And, and, and things seem to get worse. That's what happens. In my early 30s, I was still still drink pretty respectably, you know. Um, sometimes I would get into fights and things because the ego would come out and just silly things would happen. But I, no, I wasn't really a bad drunk. I was I, I was more, like you say, the kind of charismatic, I suppose, and, and really up for... for having, having a laugh and chatting. Yeah, and having a laugh. Sharing stories and stuff like that. We do things we shouldn't do. Like we go, we, we, we do a, like a bottle of tequila or a bottle of vodka before we went out, me and my two bandmates. So once again, they were 10 years younger than me. So that was okay for them. I was guess I was camouflaging my behaviours by hanging out with younger people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Cause yeah. Because yeah. I, I wasn't ready to grow up. And we, we'd get on the tube from South Wimbledon to Camden Town. And I remember setting off fire extinguishers and squirting people with fire extinguishers one night, which is just really out of order. And I'm surprised we didn't, surprised we didn't get filled in, but we never did. And, and those two, couldn't knock your skin off a rice pudding, but I, I could have a, a fight, you know, whether people, yeah. whether it looked like it or not back then. And there was something I found that there was something that seemed to make people back off of me when, you know, if things would kick off and I'd be like, even if we were in the wrong, I'd be like, yeah, you, you're fucking sure or whatever. And there did seem to be some sort of quality that made people think, you know what, I don't know, I'm not sure he seems a bit edgy. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, but mostly I, I was, I don't think I was too much of a bad drunk in terms of a total nuisance. I don't think so. Not, not like my dad was. My dad was forever getting by from the red cow or the white horse or the white cross because he, he would annoy people. I, I, yeah. I really didn't want to be like that because I'd seen him do it so much, you know? Do you think your dad's drinking and alcoholism had any impact on your relationship with drinking? Probably, yeah, because. But but and you know what people say it's not in the genes. AA teaching says it's not genetic, but it does seem to run in families. And I think with with him, I had that's very much the same thing as him. You know that idea that it's an anaesthetic for life, and it's a great way of escapism. You know, escaping responsibilities, escaping the harsher realities of life. I didn't really want to work for stuff. I just wanted things to fall into my lap. To be honest with you, and. Yeah. Um, instead of being a bit more humble and, and, and admitting that I didn't know everything, I was much more, it's taken me a while to get that work ethic. And that's why in sobriety, I've managed to, to publish three, three books and, and do some other things, which I couldn't really seem to achieve before. I would talk about it forever. People would say that I ought to do it. And you know what I mean? But I wasn't maximizing my potential. And I don't think an alcoholic ever will maximize the potential till he puts down the bottle. But me and my dad in particular used to love drinking on what he called a nameless Tuesday. Uh, you know, one of those days when, it's just a normal day, looking at the world go by, you know, drinking all yes. day, going from pub yeah, to pub. Best. They were always the fun days, though, weren't they? Do you know what I mean? It's like a fantastic odyssey where you, you meet at 12 o'clock in the Red Cow. Everything's young. You feel fresh. You feel good. Who knows what the day holds? Anything could happen today, and it probably will do. Uh, I suppose there was some... If you're not fulfilled in life and you're not really... If, if, the life, if your life is not organically providing those kind of thrills, then you turn to other things, don't you? And I think... Yes. Alcoholism, for some reason, it, I don't pretend to know the, the secret of it, but it, it seems to be something that people have in them, and it, they call it the ism, you know. And um, But no doubt my dad being the kind of alcoholic he was, I'm sure that had a, a big influence on me, you know, that he introduced me to, to some extent, you know, to that world where you just think to hell with it, let's just go on the piss. 
Yeah, someone I spoke to a couple of years, well, uh, probably about eight or nine years ago now, was um, she said, and she she was uh, like a doctor type, you know, like a psychiatrist, counsellor type person, and she said that while it's not genetic, it's very, very situational. Yes. So if you're brought up, so for me, uh, a lot of my extended family, in my opinion, I should say, um, were and some still are like functioning alcoholics yeah. as yeah. I was growing up. So very much as a kid and a teenager, early teenager, I'd be every every time there would be some sort of family gathering, there'd be a lot of alcohol, and all of those people would drink far too much, uh, end up in tears, end up in arguments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all the usual yeah. drama that comes along with it. Yeah. But what it meant is by the time I was 18, I was already well into drinking and going to the pub. And my relationship with alcohol was always going to go that route, I I think, because of those early kind of, you form your opinions, even if some are subconscious, about alcohol and, and, and whatever else that you naturally see around you in those early years, I guess. Um yeah. So it's, it's kind of one of them, but yeah, it's interesting. So was there like you said, like you were still drinking, you you got back into boxing, yeah. you were still drinking quite heavily. Like, was there like one point which kind of like a rock bottom point which made you think, right now I've got to knock this on the head, I've got to well, stop drinking? Or to be honest with you, I had several rock bottoms. De- definitely more than one because I was very nomadic. I ended up like with now it's a liver a whole bunch of times. I was never street homeless. But mm. at some point, towards the nadir of my drinking, I was staying in commercial hostels, backpackers' places. I was making money in the, you know, from my things, my personal training. And I had clients. I had a couple of fighters at different times. You know, I get money from training them, although not very much. You know, you get the money when they fight. You know, you get your ten percent, yeah. whatever. Um, I was, you know, I would be, you know, celebrating in the ring and getting boxing news, taking a picture of you in the ring with your fighter who's made a winning debut. When I'm not knowing where I'm going to stay that night, I'm thinking, okay, let me see what's available on on Booking.com because I was an expert at finding the cheapest places, dormitories, or the best deals. I, I could get a place for nine quid a night, you know, in mm. in the centre of London or in East London, whatever. I and I got to know people, you know, I've never had trouble forging relationships with people and stuff. And um, so I was just. I mean, I had stuff in storage a lot of the time, and I was just surfing from hostel to hostel. Then I might go and stay with a friend, but a friend might say, "I need a bit of training. Do you want to move? You know, do you want to move in? Come and stay with me for a month." Whether whether he knew what my situation was or not, and you know, and um, and and yeah, you know, you you can pay me in sessions. I need to lose some weight, all that. And I just I was drifting like that. And I would, you know, I'd be interviewing Larry Holmes on stage with Larry Holmes, which is you know, which is a big um, prestigious thing. But I wouldn't be know where I was going. Uh, later on that night, you know, when I'm talking to someone who's a multimillionaire who's who, who's done all that stuff that he's done, his legacy's secure, and I'm thinking, I'm not even secure tonight, never mind my reputation for posterity, you know, so, um, but the real, the final rock bottom for me, because, so, I mean, I did, I, I trained fighters, pro fighters, to, to, you know, for, for various amounts of time, the relationships didn't tend to less, probably because of my drinking, it was, it was one thing or another, to be honest with you. That you know, I worked with a fighter for a bit. He'd get him a few wins. Mm. He may he may leave, or he may just get get a loss, and then decide to leave after he gets a loss. But I was in and around the business. It gave me a presence in the game, at least. And with the social media explosion and that whole kind of thing that I built on there, you know, I'm interviewing Sugar Leonard and people 
like Larry Holmes and Roy Jones in Las Vegas. So I had to, there was this sense of celebrity and eminence, you know, social media celebrity, to be fair, not nothing beyond that, um, and eminence. But behind it was this, it was like a Hollywood set with nothing behind it. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. a, just a, a real chaotic, broken backstory behind it. So in the end, you know, um, by, I mean, I, by 2016, I was also getting a lot of tickets for people for big fights. Ticket People would come to me if they wanted tickets. And I was, you know, obviously getting a commission on those tickets. And it got to the point when I found I could get money from people for, for any number of reasons. I'd say, I'm doing a night with Frank Bruno. I need somebody to put the money up for his appearance fee. And I just need it as a loan. I'll get, I'll pay you back with interest and all the rest of it, or for tickets or for something else, or for a trip to Las Vegas, for a trip to Monte Carlo, to Dusseldorf, to, uh, you know, I went to see Fury beat Klitschko in Dusseldorf. That, if anybody wants to read the third book at some point, it's called Thrown in the Towel. There's a hilarious account in there of me and my poor mate Sean, who's also in recovery now, and just what a debacle it was from start to finish. I won't ruin it for anybody, but and I don't remember the Fury Klitschko fight because I was just so out my head. I literally don't remember. I remember this. I remember the first round bell ringing. I remember Michael Buffer saying that he won. That is it. But the point being is, I'd realised people would throw money at me for for all, and, and literally my reputation seemed to be that good. It didn't matter. So I'd, I'd start to be skint and I'd be like, well, if I put this out, I'll be able to get this money tonight and then we'll put it back. And, you know, Robin Peter to pay Paul. So in the end, by 2016, the wheel fell off. I'd started it in 2014 when I did my first trip to Las Vegas and I needed to be a bit creative with the with the funds and, and how to, you know, how I got hold of it and man managed to square the bill and all the rest of it. So by two... I was always playing catch up from that moment onwards, and by 2016 September, I'd got I'd taken a bunch of orders for tickets to the Kelbrook Kennedy Golovkin fight. Good night. Um, and long story short, there were seven and a half grand's worth of tickets outstanding. I didn't have the money or the tickets. It was the, the supply chain had broken down. I, I had a plan, and I didn't I didn't want to rip anybody off. That was career suicide, and, and it nearly was. But obviously, when people don't get their tickets or their money back. And they've been looking yeah. forward to going somewhere, and they've absolutely thought you were beyond reproach. They tend to say rather harsh things, don't they? And they tend to call you all sorts of things, you know, like criminal, crook, comment, fraud. Uh, you know, some people were trying to suggest I built it up deliberately. You know, like a, you know, the long firm concept where you initially build good relations with your suppliers, all for one day when yeah. you hit the floor and, and you clear out, and then you you leave nothing but a load of unpaid invoices. Some people were saying I'd orchestrated the whole thing from 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 years before. Because even though it was only seven and a half grand, some people were saying it was fifty grand or a hundred grand. You know what people are like Chinese whispers. Yeah, things get exaggerated and yeah. stuff, don't they? It was it was it was it was amounted to a serious six figure sum at one point, and um, and obviously that that was pretty bad because and then I ended up homeless shortly after that. Not in t not directly related, but it was all part and parcel of this downward spiral. And then you know I was still drinking. My reputation was mud. I was lucky to bounce back as well as I did, to be honest, because even before I got sober, some people were prepared to give me the benefit of the doubt because some people were like, listen, I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he's just really fucked up. He's been spinning too many plates. And he's, you know, some people understood it. I know I know, some people have been in business and said, mate, I've done it myself. Other people were like, no, no, straight con, man. You, you, you don't take money for one yeah. thing and use it for something else because what I was doing was using it to, to pay previous debts. You know what I mean? And I yeah. thought I would get... I thought I would get the tickets laid on and I didn't. Guess what? He didn't have them, couldn't get them, no matter how, what he'd got in the purse. And he's like, and he, and he was under an obligation to give them to me. And it's like, it's not his problem that I've got about 30 or 40 customers waiting for these tickets. And I've already had all the cash 
and I've already spent it. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So that was September 2016. That was bad. That really was bad. Uh, but by I was still drinking, still drifting from the hostels, from one hostel to another. Then my final rock bottom came uh, in Tesco's on Barking Road on what would have been March the 21st, 2017, when I tried to nick some beers at Tesco's. I was that out of it. Um, got in a scuff with the security guard, didn't get the beers, got a couple of buttons ripped off my shirt. I'd already lost my bag the previous couple of days on a bender and left it on a train. So except for what I had in storage, I had what I stood up in, and even the shirt didn't button up all the way. And the mm. next day I thought, I just can't do this anymore. I had three cans of cider that day because I was wary of having withdrawals. I remember thinking, I'll just have a couple today. And I did. And then on the 23rd of March, Thursday, 23rd of March, 2017, I went to an AA meeting in Brick Lane. And for some reason, I'd been before and it not really done it for me. But this time it felt different. Listened to the chair, kind of seemed to resonate. I don't know what it was. Really don't know what it was. Spoke to a few people afterwards. One guy said to me, you're in for a glorious journey. And for some reason, it, it kind of it, it got to me, those, those words. I remember thinking, perhaps he's right. Maybe I'll give this a go this time. But, I, you know, I see where my thinking has got me. And uh, maybe they really are onto something, this mob, you know. They, 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 some mm. of them look quite happy and healthy and successful. And, and I just I went to AA the next day at lunchtime in Barking. I went to another one. And then I went to another one that evening because I bumped into another guy who did, the, who did the, good, the good AA bit by giving me his number and saying, why don't you come tonight to Victoria Park? And they said, we go for a meal afterwards. We go for a bit of Turkish food. So I went to th three meetings in two days. I was flying. I was thinking. And I didn't feel bad. You know, I wasn't withdrawing. I, I didn't feel too bad. And um, and then I, then I went for a meal afterwards, and that was okay. Then they said, come to one tomorrow. So it's like, okay, fourth meeting in three days. And then they gave me the chip you get, you know, for anybody 24 hours sober. I was like 72 hours sober, but you can't. They don't do one for 72 hours. They do yeah. they do for they do 24 hours, they do a month, they do, you know, and so on. So, um, and I got my chip and all the rest of it, the first one. Um, and I stuck with it. And then soon I got, things got better. I, I, I suddenly got in a position where, I could move into somewhere properly. I got myself initially a place in East Ham, which wasn't the Ritz, but it was it was all right. Um, and then um, everything seemed to improve exponentially. I mean, I started working for Boxing Social. A bit, I had a relationship with them beforehand, but things took off for a little while. I thought I was banned from matchroom shows because people told me Eddie Hearn had said I was banned for life because of not just... I'd upset other people in the matchroom organisation with my drinking, but then when he heard the ticket thing, he said, that's him, it's him done. I bumped into Eddie Hearn at a neutral press conference. It was a Salem press conference, but he, he was there with Jamie Cox, who was fighting George Groves. We did an interview. We chatted. I told him I'd made a few changes in my life, and I was wondering if it might be okay to come back to the shows. I like Eddie, you know, he's, he's all right. He said mm. to me, Ben, it's fine with me. He said, it's not a problem for me. I told you it wouldn't be a long-term problem. He said, but... He's got more important things to worry about than me. You know what I mean? I'm not that big yeah, of a deal. Yeah. I know that. But he said, Ben, it's not a problem for me. He said, why don't you send Anthony an email, Anthony Lever, and tell him, you know, what you've told me. I'm sure it'll be all right. And it was all right. And then even the big security guard who had a, a big fight with, well, not, lucky for me, I didn't have a big fight with him, but we had a ruck. It was handbags and pushing and whatnot. He wanted to kill me. He said he's admitted that since. But we ended up becoming good friends. Uh, it, it, we only met a couple of times, but we become good friends on Facebook. And yeah. uh, he's, you know, he was, they were really nice to me, the, the Matchroom security people again. Frank Smith, you know, who's quite important in Matchroom's organisation. It was him I was really getting on his nerves and calling him out and all the rest of it. And um, he was okay about it, you know, and um, everything just got better. And I, 
the big thing I realized was I actually loved being sober and I, I started running again. You know, fitness, obviously, a lot of people get into that um, when they stop drinking. Um, mm-hmm. I started did really you, enjoying God. I was just going to say, did you relapse? Have you relapsed at all since? Not a drop, not one drop. Um, you know, it's pretty that, unusual. I, like, normally, people do have. Not, I yeah, know everyone's different, of course, that. but there is people that that will have a an early relapse just because it's yeah. breaking those habits, isn't it? Um, the, so you I, know what? Fair play the last time I felt like a drink, somebody served me a Bex normal. I was about forty days sober or something, and someone gave me Bex proper when it was supposed to be Bex blue. I took one sip and spat it out and said, "Sorry, mate, that's Bex normal." And he went, "Sorry, sorry, sorry," and gave me the Bex innocuous. Yeah, uh, and then. Yeah, so that honestly, technically, that passed my lips then, didn't it? But not intentionally. So that, but no, yeah, not, not intentionally fault, at all. No, no, it's not my fault. And it didn't. But you know what? It was weird because that's the only taste of booze I've had in that nearly five years. Could have gone wrong, couldn't it? You could, could, like, seriously, you could. I think could have had a taste then been a wolf. Because it was honestly it was powerful. As well. It was powerful. I was like, "This is fucking real beer," and I'd know it anywhere. You know what I mean? I, I yeah, just yeah. tasted one bit and was like, "Fuck me, this is." Um, and like you say, it, it could go wrong. And I wonder, somewhere in this crazy world, someone's been sued, haven't they? They must have been. Oh, 100, 100%. In America. Because, yeah, yeah, most likely. <laughs> definitely in America. Um, so obviously, you got sober. You repaired your reputation. Yeah. You're doing, you're sort of back involved in boxing. You're doing training. You're doing a bit of um, sort of social media stuff and yeah. whatnot. Where did, when did you decide that you were going to write a book, let alone three books? I was doing it even in the drinking years. I started it, I think, in 2016 when I was still drinking, the first one. I, you know what? I didn't think it was the first one. I thought it was going to be the only one and it was going to be everything in it. But because, to be honest with you, people, people have told me for years you should write a book because I'm a bit of a raconteur. I would tell stories on social media or, you know, in, in either, you know, text based or video based. And people said, Oh, you know, you've had a, you've had a, an interesting life, etc. You should, should write a book. So, uh, I started writing it when I was still drinking, but didn't got quite far with it, but didn't finish it obviously. And then it, I left it for, even for, even in sobriety, I left it for a long time. Didn't touch it for well over a year. And then it was in the first bit of the pandemic. I suddenly got to a certain point in the story. To be honest, I got to the point where I told you about when I got back from this Colorado with no money, no passport, and uh, managed to get in. Something funny happened. When I finally did get back, I still wasn't over the winning line, which I won't ruin for anybody who might read it. And then what it was, I had about 35,000 words, which is not really enough for a book. It's more like a novella length, to be honest with you. But yeah. And I thought, why don't I just put this one out now and see what people think of it? Because it's like an adolescent story of its own. It was a coming-of-age story. It was more about vaguely promising boxer, sees guns and roses and everything goes pear-shaped. That's basically what the book is, the first one. So I might as well get the visual plug in. that. So then I thought, let's put this one out first and just call it Drink, Drugs, Birds and Boxing. Um that's what it's called, okay? Um, and that one did all right. People liked it. I mean, I look at it now and I think it's it's okay, but already I kind of feel like I've improved and grown a bit as a writer since this, this one was done. But So that was that one. Then obviously the, the second one, I thought, I, I, I suddenly decided there would be three if there was going to be volume, if it was going to be serialised at all. This is the second one, Drink, Drugs, Birds and Boxing, Volume 2, which is 
that takes you up to New York. So it's, it's, it's the other way with these things, isn't it? You've got to get it right. Uh, yeah, that takes you up to New York and the fight with Ashanta Hendrickson and uh, Gleason's the New York stuff. And then the thing that I told you about more since then of like uh, John Ryder, the Angel, getting a pro license, the the madness that went on behind the facade of normality with the alcoholism and the nomadic kind of behaviour and the redemption and all the rest of it, it's all in that one. It's called throwing in the towel. And the reason it's called that is because they say you have to surrender in order to win when, when, when you're dealing with addiction and alcoholism and all the rest of it. The point, the idea is when you, it's not about willpower, it's not about victory, it's not about being stubborn or anything else, it's about throwing in the towel and, you know, setting yourself free, really, so... So Absolutely. yeah, and what like anything else, you know, as uh, soon as I did the first one and I got a few sales and a few good reviews, it gave me the input to the second one. And then the second one was written in five months, I think, five or six months, and it was out published. Wow. Um, same thing with the throwing in the towel; it was done pretty quickly. I think about six months. So, I th my advice to anybody who thinks they, who wants to do a book, who thinks they've got something that's worth writing and publishing it's just to crack on with it we, we live in an era now when it's so easy to do that you know with, with kdp and you know the way to do anything i think is to get your hands dirty and just crack on with it but you've just got to put the work in and what the other thing i'd say is work on it every day i mean I, i'm writing a biography of wilford benitez right now about thirteen thousand words in um and i work on it every day even if it's only a little bit even if you get one paragraph done a day if you the more when you leave it you drift away from it and, and yes. you find excuses not to do it. So if you're going to write something, I would say write it every day and just keep going. You know, on you because you, you can write it when, on a device, or you, you can write it when you're travelling on trains, right? You know, whether you, I mean I write them on my yeah. phone, but whether you want to do it on a laptop or whatever, you know, tablet. Absolutely. So is that something that you're going to try and con, you know continue to do? Is keep writing books, um, whether it's biographies or would you be interested in writing? I don't know anything, maybe fiction-based yeah, yeah because there's a freedom to that isn't there because steve bunce did it quite well you know he, he, steve bunce wrote a book called the fixer and it's you can recognize people in it like there's a there's a gym called the phoenix and it's obviously supposed to be the peacock the old one at Cannon town you know and there's a there's a a statue of a, of a fighter who tragically died outside and his name's his name's i think his name's brian rock which is obviously supposed to be bradley stone you know so I think there's something, it's nice to do some things you think might be a bit sensitive for revealing in print. You could fictionalize it with that smoke yeah. screen, couldn't you? And also, you could just make stuff up as well. You've got that freedom. So, of course, yeah. I, I would like to write a boxing based book about this industry, very modern to, to do with the whole uh, IFL TV phenomenon as well, you know, in the social media and all that, and Eddie Hearn and all the rest of it. But, but make it fictional. Um, that would be fun, yeah. I think maybe maybe next time or next time at one. But I think Benitez will be finished at some point, whenever it is. I think maybe should be out. I would hope it'd be out next spring. Yeah, conservative estimate. So, but but it, it would be fun to write something which is not supposed to be factual. It's just a good story. Yeah, about, so about boxing brings people in. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Um, so. What I wanted to, well, what I like to finish these shows off with, with a couple of, um, couple of weird questions. Then I weird. I suppose they're philosophical. I don't know how you describe them. You would most definitely describe them better than I would. But um, it's three questions really. Um, the first one is, what is the meaning of life for Ben Doherty? 
Um, I th- uh, let me think. Um, I think ultimately it's, it's about maximising my p- potential. Uh, and to me, there is a relationship now with a higher power which, which, in which I acknowledge that he knows or it knows better than I do about what, what my, maximising my potential ultimately amounts to. I mean, I, I want to be a good father. I, I do the best job I can for my sons. I want to be as decent and kind as I can be to anybody, you know, that I encounter in life who doesn't do something which is going to alienate that kind of kindness. And um, I, I would like, I mean, I would like to ins, ins, to inspire as many people as I can while pursuing my, my passion, you know, which is that's what, what I try to do with, 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 the box, with the boxing thing, really. You know, I mean, it's, on, my, on the one hand, it's only Facebook, it's only YouTube, it's only whatever, it's only Ace Podcast, but I have had people over the years say, you know, if it wasn't for your page, I wouldn't be on social media. And I've had even deeper stuff with people saying that um, I was a friend of mine died this year, you know, and it's been tough. But some of the threads on, on cold winter nights, some of the threads on your page have kind of got me through a tough time. When, you know, when you think if, if we can have that positive effect on one another, that, that, that that's kind of what it means to me is, is um, until I get a better idea, just simply to be to, to maximize our potential. And to be as positive as we can be, I, d- I don't believe in resentments, even if people, you know, because the trouble with resenting people, even if they kind of deserve it and they're not pulling their weight and they've wronged you in some way, it, it, it only harms you to carry that resentment. It's like carrying burning coals. I think Tyson Fury said that, didn't he? But carrying a yeah. burn, you either throw them, the, you could throw at the person if you want, but holding on to a clutch and it's going to burn your hands, you know. So, yes, um, 100%. Just, ultimately, to me, to, yeah, to, to, just to be. In AA, we get encouraged to, to live a day at a time as well, you know. So, it, with every day, I, I just want to be. It sounds really lame, and, and the old me would have been like, "What the hell's happened to you?" But <laughs> there's a fellow at AA who used to say, "We can't be truly happy unless we're virtuous." And as as lame and Christian and grey and car, you know, car boot sale as that sounds, I actually think it's true. And that's why when you when you pursue decadent paths like you know, like drink and drugs and gambling and, and es- whether it's espionage or double, even people who work in high finance, you know, in, in those dog-eat-dog worlds, you tend to find you're not happy even, and it only ever leads to more obsession with money, fame, power, sex. Do you know what I mean? I think where it's at is actually serenity, growing up, being happy in your own skin, being happy in your own company, if you have to be, sun, you know, rural country walks. I think that is where the beauty of life is found. I think all that other stuff, a lot of it's just an illusion, all the bright lights. You know what I mean? I really do. One hundred percent. Um and it's interesting. Do you know, um one of the most rewarding things I've had since I started doing these podcasts and and, and everything which has kind of come with it is when we ever whenever I've done shows which have kind of broached on subjects like addiction or mental health or little just things my own experiences when i've kind of got into detail about that or we've had guests on and they've talked about it is i will always get a few messages a text a dm or something where someone will say i've been through that as well and just hearing you talk about it in public and kind of putting yourself out there makes me feel like i'm not alone or gives me a lift or i and i get them all the time not hundreds and thousands of them but every time without fail yes. that we talk about something like that, 
someone will send a message. And to me, if I can reach one person who's kind of struggling by just saying, oh, well, I went through this or talking to a guest and they've been through this and that reaches that one person, I'm happy with Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You know, and that's, that is it. I mean, I think that that's all you need. If you can, that's the other thing. There's In AA, there's another text called Just for Today. And one of the things it says, I'll do someone a good turn and not, I will do someone a good turn and not get found out. And I think if you, it, it, whether people believe it or not, it does help. You know, there you do reap good karma, good energy. There, there is, there are patterns in life, and uh, you know, you give yourself a better chance if you. I mean, you know what I mean, I'm not saying don't drink and don't be young and mad and foolish. I think that's all great, beautiful sometimes. But but if you happen to be that person who 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 is of that obsessive nature. You know what I mean? Then it's like, it's only ever going to lead to it's only ever going to end in tears. I believe that. So I think I found the meaning of life, so far as I understand it, in my straight head, in sobriety, and it was to do with surrender, and it was to do with compliance, and it was to do with admitting that me in the driving seat had achieved the square root of fuck all. You know what I mean? <laughs> in your opinion, in one word. Is there life after death? Yeah. There you go. And then, and then the final question of the show, where will Ben Doherty be in five years' time? Well, I, already, I, I, I did make the proviso we tend to live a day at a time in AA. But, um, yes, you did. I think um, I would like to think at that point, I'd have written more books and had more of an impact at that. Um, I think that I intend to make some more moves on the business side of boxing as well because I had a manager's license in 2013 that didn't really use it a great deal. I mean, I did manage one fighter that I was training at the time, but I would like to do some more things in the business side of it as well as the journalism side. And I think as well, I'd have had some more success on the journalistic front of presenting and, and, and doing stuff, whether it's stuff like this or whether it's commentary, whatever. I think I'll have, I'll have made strides with that and the literary side of it and the business side of it. I think, I mean, I'm living in Sutton right now. This is my place in Sutton. I'm quite happy here, but I don't know if I'll still be here in five years' time. Don't know whether I might have moved in with my girlfriend by then or what. The, you know, who knows what the future holds. Um, but... Um, Still, still doing what I'm doing. I, I think. I mean, let's say we, we could all get run over by a bus tomorrow, of course. But um, it's always a bus, isn't it? As well, it's always a bus. Yeah, it's say. always it, a bus. It, it got a very bad reputation, buses. But <laughs> no, you know, I think I would still be doing what I'm doing. I, I think you know, which will be what it's writing about boxing, talking about boxing, and being involved in boxing. What I mean, I've trained amateurs even as recently as this in the pandemic, you know, in the summer I was training the Leads of Rose and ABC, which is just up the road from me. So whether, it, whether it's training white collars, training professionals or training amateurs, I think I'll still be teaching people how to hit and not get hit. I'll still be writing about boxing and still be talking about boxing. I certainly hope I'll still be sober because if I'm not, I think I'll be in trouble. And, um, I don't know where I'll be living, honestly. I, 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 one, my, my guess no, on my track record is I won't still be in this house in Sutton, but, but who knows? I, I would like to be in my own house somehow that that really is mine. That's that, that's where I would like to be. Who knows? It feels like home. Yeah. Uh, listen, Ben, um, 
first and foremost, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for sharing. It's been, uh, as always, a pleasure to speak to you. But also, I'd like to say, like, I'm really happy to see you looking healthy, sounding healthy and and, and sober and, and and quite content by all, by all means. You sound like you are kind of happy in your own skin, which is a term you used earlier. Um, yeah. And for someone like me who has spent a large portion uh, of their sort of 20s, teens, early 30s not feeling like that yeah i always in, and and now feeling a little bit more like that myself uh, i always enjoy speaking to people like yourself and and kind of i can recognize it in people that they just they seem like they're on the right uh the right path yeah. if you want to say that but just generally i want people to be happy in themselves because that's what ultimately matters and it's not about uh money fame and all that sort of stuff no. can't take that with you when you go anywhere can you no you can't no it's like it's um i mean like, as you as you just said i mean it's, it's friday night and um i'm absolutely i'm enjoying having a chat with you for like what it looks like it's about uh yeah nearly an hour and a half that is my yeah. idea of a good friday night it used to be all so different and it was also fraught and there was so much drama and you know and there was so much so much expenditure as well so much it costs so much Jeez. and i I am well and truly okay with staying in on a Friday night now. I'm at my own flat uh, tonight talking to you, and I've got plenty of things to get on with tomorrow. There's never a dull moment. I just think it's the way forward. And in closing, for anybody who, who can't imagine a life without alcohol, and I know because I was there, and I know a lot, a lot of people feel that way, when you get out the other side, more will be revealed, and you'll get to a point when the old life seems very small and outmoded and unappealing. It really does. Absolutely. And um, I will put links in below uh for mind mental health charity alcoholics anonymous and stuff like that if you have been affected by anything which we've talked about as ever please do reach out uh to us i have a chat with anyone uh but also those links are below to help and um of course i'll put links to ben's uh, ben's three books as well so you can purchase them and check them out i urge you to check them out because uh i'm going to be i want to check out the throwing in the, the uh throwing in the towel when i've just bought it up on my amazon now i'm going to order that now and then um, I'm looking forward to reading that. But, uh, of course, guys, please do subscribe to uh, youtube.com slash acepodcastnation and uh, give us a follow and all that good stuff. But uh, most of all, Ben Doherty, it's been my pleasure. Cheers. And mine. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.